So today we're discussing Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in 11 Fights by Helen Lewis. Teresa, take us away. Hi. Um, Well, just as a way of introducing the book and how I happened upon it, I literally happened upon it in a bookstore in England. I was visiting there. Oh, that long time ago when we could actually travel and it was literally the week before we all got locked down but I um it caught my eye and I picked it up and um brought it home and it turns out that I really enjoyed it um had a very um brief um awareness of this author she's a 30 something woman in England she's white and she's um, she talks a lot about herself in the book. Um, just I think to give context and to also just her writing style of to make um, feminism kind of what it means to her and what she learns along the way. Um, but she recognizes that she's not every woman, and that actually feminism is different to different people. Um, so, and she does talk about intersectionality kind of as we um, aim for it in Women's March, um, but she admits that she's privileged. And um, so this is all gonna be slightly from her perspective, but she tries to, um, to find out other people's perspectives along the way. Um, she, she starts off by saying that her impetus for writing the book was a certain time in um, in feminism where some people thought, especially younger women, thought that we didn't really need to worry about things because it's all been sorted. You know, women have certain rights and women have made it. Um, you know, there's certain assumptions that younger women can have right now about, um, you know, that if they get it abused by their partner for example if they call the police the police are actually going to take them seriously as opposed to just saying this is a domestic matter will go away um there's rights in the workplace and there's rights to vote and there's rights to all kinds of things that women of our grand my grandparents generation wouldn't have had even you know just a hundred years ago so but then she was also saying but in the same time of um cancel culture and sort of everybody being in on the debate on Twitter or on social media, um, you know, looking back at some of these people that through their activism and through their work, um, they would now be considered problematic because of kind of the approaches they took or the life, the, the activities they did and she's saying, look, we have to see that nobody's perfect. And, um, you know, you can do with that what you want. You don't have to accept everybody's flaws. But um, she's saying, basically, feminism is messy. Um, and as, as we've learned in this, being in this journey together, the three of us, um, <clears throat> you know, there is often a lot of struggle within a group. Um, a feminist and um, and that sometimes we're each other's worst enemies 
um, which is kind of starting off negative, but I don't think it's really a negative book. But basic sort of the themes are, um, you know, should the perfect be the enemy of the good? You know, should, do, we, do we accept that certain things bring progress for women, even if some women get initially left behind? Um, if some of the women that drive the progress or start the conversations eventually become people that we wouldn't agree with on much. And, um, you know, what do we, what do we go, what do we accept in this for the sake of progress and how do we talk about thorny issues? Um, and then she goes on to, to talk about, I think a lot of really interesting people and a lot of the people she writes about are not people that I would really want to hang out with. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but they're, um, they're interesting to meet along the way. And I'm sometimes pretty much in awe of um, some of the things these people have done, although not in the sort of, as she says, the fairy tales for girls kind of feminism where you get to uh, airbrush out the parts we don't like. Um, so on that, we get introduced to a lot of um, uh, interesting women, a lot of background and um, she starts off with, I think she starts off with vote, right? Yeah. Oh, no, she starts off with divorce, which people, is her. Yeah, divorce yeah. is the first. Yeah. Um, where she talks about um, her own uh, divorce. But we're going to only, for the sake of time, we're only going to talk about uh, three of the different uh, um, struggles. Thank you, um, Teresa, for the introduction. I think um was very um well done and I mean informative because I really think it's a uh, just maybe to come back on that it's a really interesting book and I think the way it is presented um, it is uh, very complete I think on 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 you know the themes that it tackles but also in the way it, it, it talks about it so that we see all the different angles and not also not the nice angles to it that happen in feminism, yeah? Uh, but with, at the end of the day, uh, you know, the interest to move forward the different rights for women. So, um, so regarding the vote, <clears throat> I mean, I think it was quite a... Uh, for me, it was still quite a shocking um, chapter. I mean, just because I didn't know enough about uh, the suffragettes, how they are called. So I really didn't know what they had to go through uh, to really get the vote. And maybe where it starts off, I mean, just to put it in a time frame, we are talking about um, Helen Lewis starts out on in 1905 uh, to talk about in Britain um, about that movement. Um, and that means that already for 50 years, um, there have been peaceful demonstrations to get the vote, but nothing was happening. So what they start with, in fact, the Women's Social and Political Union, 
uh, is that they start a radical militant movement for to get the vote and the only cause there is the vote, nothing else. So um, people have been thrown out, other women out of the movement just because they didn't want to focus only on that issue and on the other side because uh, they didn't want to be more radical in the movement to move forward for the vote to get progress. So, um, so there are dif different people mentioned. I think the there, yeah. I mean, what is maybe important for us to know is that there is uh, the Pankhurst family that has been very much involved in that movement. It's Annie Kenny that is coming from the workforce, really working class, and then. I would say the other one that has been very important in the movement is uh, Lady Constance Lytton, uh, who comes from really, uh, you know, uh, noble class. So, in fact, the movement that has been there to 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 work, or I mean, to advance the vote, has been with very with women from very different backgrounds uh, during several years. They worked, they thought about for it in a radical way for more than 10 years before it started to go in a certain direction. So um, one of the questions for me was for that chapter, and I will just maybe uh, tell a little bit more about what happened to this. So they, when they did um, riots in the streets, or I mean, they were demonstrating, smashing windows, uh, whatever it was, they got imprisoned, these women. And then what happened is that they were um, they were not in prison, like, um, how you say, not as political um, prisoners, but as criminal prisoners. And to protest against that, the women started hunger strikes. Yeah. And for that, they, so the prison started to force feed them. Yeah. And the force feeding is really torture. I mean, I think that part in the book is very interesting where, uh, you know, Helen Lewis asks, in fact, a doctor, uh, a contemporary doctor to explain what was happening and what this means uh, to be force fed. So it makes us understand how uh, terrible really that has been and how strong these women have been to support that during, I don't know, uh, several times and whatever, several times a day and during a long period. So, um, yeah, one of the, the questions I have maybe or that we can discuss here is really, what do you think about this practice of uh, force feeding, but also, you know, uh, it is linked to, um, yeah, I would say just on on the force feeding side, is there anything, I mean, for me, again, maybe I'm just not well informed, but 
I hadn't in this, I hadn't uh, been aware of what was happening to these women during so much time uh, in uh, in in that way in prison. Yeah, uh, I'm kind of the same as you, Francisca. I'd heard of force feeding before, obviously, mm-hmm. but I think this is the first time I read such a graphic description uh, of what it entails, and it really is torture and. Uh, I was also uh, quite struck by the fact that Lady Khan, how she wasn't force-fed when when the mm-hmm. law enforcement knew that she was her, but as soon as they perceived her, when she disguised herself and they perceived her to be a lower-class woman, then they had no problem changing their treatment of her. Yeah, I thought that overlap of class and their individual experiences in the uh, suffragette movement were so interesting. And I liked how she talked about uh, Kinney and um, really brought her to life because she points out there's really not too much about her in the history books and you really have to dig to find her. Um, There was a movie I saw a few years ago um, about this period and they actually show them like they portray it in in this movie about um, the the force feeding and it was also the main character in this movie and I don't remember it it could have been Kinney. Um, She worked in a laundry and she ended up losing her child and her, her husband left her and, and then she lost her child because she was, she kept participating in the suffragette things. I mean, it was, I, it was fictionalized or, or, you know, dramatized anyway. Um, yeah. But I mean, it's, I think what also comes out is how much more the working class people did suffer and did give up. I mean, they put their literally put their lives on the line more because after this, after they would get out of prison, they would require like a convalescent period to to get over this experience. You know, the, the hunger strike and then the force feeding was just very physically violent. So, I mean, it just it just puts me in awe that somebody who was literally working to feed herself and you know had no no safety net at all that she did so much for the cause you know it's just amazing it's amazing I, and uh, and uh, i think um it goes back to the point that lewis mentioned several times throughout the book that so many people who fought for things we take for granted by nature of the fact that we take them for granted we for, forget about the the women or the people in general who fought for those things which i yeah. think is really a shame no i, I i'm gonna make my daughter read this book and, and my husband because i think it's just so yeah. interesting I also think it's really that's why I like the book so much because I really think it's 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 a interesting way of tackling it and and issues that uh yeah things that concern us or as you say uh, Doreen that where we largely profit from today for what they have fought for and in which way I mean I can't imagine what it has been I mean that's just you know and where I also, I mean, uh, we have talked a little bit about it already now, is that mixing, I mean, of of class, I mean, and also maybe in that way how Lady Con tries really in that sense as she's a noble person and she has all these privileges that she tries really uh, somehow to be... Uh, treated as uh, any other woman, but she doesn't really manage even to do that. And whenever what is interesting in that 
that, uh, I mean, at least she wrote then about it, about her experience, and she wrote it's her brother who published it in the Times, which makes that, in fact, the force feeding really gets publicity and obviously in a bad way publicity at that time and that people realize what is happening to these women. But it has it's a man at the end no? who brings it up or in the way that again. Uh, but she 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 really tries in that sense to uh to yeah to uh to be one of all these women and in uh, she can't do it and on the other side she suffers i mean health-wise at the end of the day uh, also uh, very severe consequences of that she was force-fed huh? uh, as obviously a lot of other women which brings me to the part that when uh, Lady Con and she she steps out because she has a seizure, uh, she has a, a real health problem at that time, we enter into a phase in 1912 and 13 that gets extremely that gets much more. Uh, we go into a more extreme militant phase, yeah, where there are. Uh, bombings, there are fire set, um, things like that. And that brings me to the question, is it the question use of violence in that sense and, you know, uh, being not law-abiding um, to advance a cause? What do you think about it? I tried to find some more history on when there were violent actions or whatever, or more uh, by other women's movements, I couldn't really find it. I didn't also spend maybe enough time, but I was really interested in that aspect of, you know, being more radical about it uh, in, in that way, um, you know, uh, um, and... Again, they really got the media attention only when they got very radical in that movement. So uh, in, in that way of asking for women to have the right to vote. Yeah, I guess in the parlance of the day, you know, they didn't ask nicely. And once they stopped being ladylike. And started then, being difficult. Yeah, yeah then, they, then they, the, the power structure realized that they weren't going to go away. And um, yeah, I mean, it's conflicting, of course, because, you know, I don't really believe in violence as a tactic, but it worked, or at least I mean, it I, helped. On a personal level, uh, I believe in violence. If violence is being committed <laughs> against you, and we talked about yeah. a couple of years ago, the different types of violence, structural violence, cultural violence, and direct violence, mm -hmm then, I mean, you can't just beg your oppressor, the person who's committing violence against you, to stop. I mean, you need to return fire, in my personal well, opinion. The way, the way they were treating, you know, half the population was inexcusable. And there was, you know, in other cases, you know, unanswered violence against, you know, individual women in their homes, and they had no recourse against it. I mean, it's not a direct link to the vote, but, um, you know, it's interesting. I think she goes on to talk about what kind of uh, legislation was passed, you know, in the years following 
women getting the vote. And once uh, women started to make their presence known at the ballot box, things changed pretty quickly um, in the 20th century in the UK. But it's also they got all kinds of amazing legislation through finally. Yeah, but it's also interesting why it happened at that point. Oh, and somehow, yes, it was that they were pushing, pushing and doing a lot. But on the other side, it's the first world war that made that women again got into jobs or were at home as men were uh, in the war that it made that even parliament or whatever thought okay maybe now if we have a suffrage okay it won't be representative of uh, i mean because all men are in war so let's maybe make make women vote so it's you know it's again i think it's that's a very interesting fact i wasn't aware of that at all that how much that played a role, I think, at least in Britain, it clearly played a role that they got first the, the limited voting rights in 1918 and then in um, uh, 1928, the full, the universal suffrage. But uh, mm. um, I think that's, yeah, it's mind blowing again. I mean, you know, we need a war that uh, things can advance. I mean, it's not obviously, we can't see it like that, just, uh, but it's... Um, well, I think through history, we've seen, especially in the 20th century, that war breaks things and things can, newness can creep in through the cracks. Um, I mean, it's certainly no excuse for war and it's no, doesn't make war good, but it it's a little bit of a silver lining. Um you know, that you can get changed out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, in, yeah, it acts how as a it catalyst, society. Even it, yeah. even though it's obviously not ideal. Mm. Yeah. Well, but just going back to something that you referenced, too, that it didn't start out in 1918 that everybody got the vote. It was really only elite women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, Speaking of, I, mean, I was... Uh, did you both know about Sophia Duleep Singh before reading this? I had never heard of her. The Indian princess... No. Um, well, she's described as an Indian princess, but she was Ethiopian and German and Indian because uh, her mother was mixed race. But I was fascinated to read about her and did kind of a deep dive on her. She was a suffragette also. I just, I never heard of her. Cool. Well, what else did you find out about her? If you, if it's not putting you on the spot too much? <laughs> it is putting me on the spot too much. I mean, just, I just read so, about her okay. life and I was just fascinated to know about this Indian British princess that I'd never heard of before. Cool. Well, there is one, two, three, four long pages of further reading and sources. So I'm hoping to dip into some of those um, other publications at some other point. The other thing which I think is really good in that book, I mean, there are so many references and it points you into a lot of different directions. I like that mm-hmm. also very much about it. And it obviously shows also the way she researched about it by writing that book or also by mm-hmm. going out and interviewing uh, different women, you know, that have been active for a certain cause. I think that's uh, that's really interesting way. Also, it makes it very, 
it links it really to the present also in that way that she she does it. Uh, I mean, maybe to just close the chapter on the vote, because otherwise I think we really should move on, is just... I obviously would like to point out, as we are in Switzerland, that Switzerland has been the latest test in in history to accept the women's vote in 1971. Yeah. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's the. So, uh, Doreen is going to talk about work. Um, well, some of the themes I wanted to discuss um, from this chapter are uh, race and human rights and um, solidarity. Um, so the chapter starts out talking about Jaya Ben Desai, who is um, a woman of Indian descent who uh, moved to Tanzania when she got married, I believe, in the early 1920s. And in the mid-1920s, uh, she and her family moved to the UK. Um, uh, I remember correctly. Uh, no, nope. Sorry, they were in Tanzania, not Uganda. Um, but uh, there was a mass migration from South Asians from in Africa, East Africa specifically, to the UK. Uh, and once they arrived in the UK, they they received uh, second class treatment. You know, they weren't paid as much, especially if they were women. They were relegated to factory jobs. Um, they had they faced a whole host of human rights violations in these jobs. But before we get to that, something that I immediately thought of when I was reading this was the fact that Asians in Africa were sort of of a higher status than the local population. So it's like they were benefiting from racism in a way when they were in Africa. And then when they moved to to the UK, they became victims of racism. So I was wondering if the two of you had any thoughts about that. First of all, that's interesting. But second, it seems like people are always trying in race, always making a hierarchy, you know, and it's, it's frustrating because, but I guess that were they more of imperialist when they went to Africa or was it more like just, um, I don't more know about their, or they just in imposed their, an, a, an economic structure. Well, uh, in I would say the majority of Indians who moved to Africa, at least in the late 19th century, they were taken as indentured servants by the British. But there was also later migration. And then there was also the fact that they had access to, to jobs that were of a higher status than the local African populations of the different countries had. So um, how they arrived... It depends on when they arrived and under what circumstances. But even now, uh, South Asians in, in East Africa uh, hold the majority of the wealth, um, kind of like how in West Africa, there are a lot of Lebanese people who uh, have much more wealth than local populations do. And I will say in this book, I kind of, I like the way Helen Lewis approached race instead of having a separate chapter on race, which I think might've been useful. At the same time, she kind of wove it throughout the book. So I like the fact that this, chapter was not a race chapter. It was a chapter about labor rights, but there was a huge uh, race angle that she explored through the chapter. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, and I think that it's, I found it interesting that uh, one of the factories, I can't remember if it was the Grunwick factory that Jaya Ben was working in, or if it was one of the other factories, that initially there had been white women, uh, women of African and Caribbean descent, 
uh, and men working in those factories. And then the the working population in these factories shifted so that by the time that these strikes come about, it's South Asian women working in them. This minority population of women was considered to be in some ways a more ideal worker, but an, an ideal worker means that you're treating them worse. Yeah, they're exploitable. Mm-hmm. They're people that don't have other options and they are motivated to take any job because it's difficult and they're still trying to find their footed, footing in the, in the labor market and in the society, really. Yeah. I mean, as somebody from California, I mean, you see this a lot, you know, that whoever the last big immigrant group to come in, especially if it's a group that comes in without education, I mean, not like, like a contrast between like the Central Americans and the people that were, there's a huge refugee population from the 80s from when the Shah was deposed in Iran and those people landed on their feet (laughs) because they had they had money back where they came from and they had education Um, so they all started businesses as opposed to like the Central American women who all basically have the most um, tenuous jobs and the most exploited probably as well so there's probably a similarity across cultures that whoever is the most vulnerable or desperate will take will get treated the worst Um, that's interesting though because i think if her family moved to tanzania that they were at least middle class or upper class when they were there you know like i don't think she came without education she was educated but somehow the dynamics of the uk that's that's i I agree with you doreen in that sense i um um, i mean i think uh, you can compare it what Teresa just said before to the ones that came from iran very well educated and then you Mm -hmm. know so um and i was just struck how uh, the, the types of human rights violations that were taking place in the Grunwick mailroom and presumably the other type, the mailrooms and factories at the time, like they had um, rights that maybe were not even recognized back then, but to us now seem like, well, obviously, like they couldn't take bathroom breaks. They didn't have regular breaks uh, in factories where there were people of different races working together. There was pay discrimination there was even discrimination in, well, this person can take a break, but you can't. And I think that as much as we like to think that that's over now, like racial discrimination at work and sexual harassment at work are still very much realities that many of yeah. us face. And even I, uh, <laughs> I still, um, all of my labor rights are not respected. Um, I don't get any paid leave at all, even though I, I work a nine to five job. Um, I, I am allowed to go to the bathroom, but, yeah. Um, but yeah, the rest of it's outrageous. And yeah, that, that might be a subject for another time. Yeah. But, um, but I just was struck by how much, obviously I'm more fortunate than these, the women described in this chapter are, but I'm still yeah. like, wow, I can kind of relate to some of this at the same time. Yeah, but wasn't this woman's son also employed there? And even though yeah. he was like a temporary worker, and he actually got treated better too. Or not, he was yeah. part time and she was full time. Yeah, he was more of a casual worker. Just the the idea that entire groups of people are looked upon as cheap and disposable is is human rights issue. I mean, and it, it happens mm-hmm. today, absolutely. 
Um, and I was uh, struck by the the strikes. Uh, something that surprised me was the the Apex Union, uh, which Lewis mentions, the Association of Professional Executive Clerical and Computer Staff, supported the striking workers with an allowance and gave them legal advice. This was like a pleasant shock but to me because I was thinking, you know, these people are kind of at the bottom of society. They're victims of racism. They're victims of misogyny, xenophobia. And, and this union where they were not traditionally members still supported them. And I, I really appreciated that. And I also like the quotes from Jaya Ben Desai, like, we'll be here for 10 years if that's what it takes. And it was hugely disappointing that the strike that, that they were on for two years did not work, mm-hmm. but still quite inspiring. What year was this strike? Um, 1976, yeah. So that was yeah. before the Thatcher movement, before the Thatcher era, right? But that was heading into a really horrible time in England with like the labor movement getting absolutely crushed Yeah. over, over the decades, um, you know, where people would go on strike and they would do anything, even like exist with only part of their power grid just so they could crush the coal miners and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, but so it's impressive. It's super impressive and heroic really that they went as far as they did. Yeah, um, I agree. Um, I one thing, thing about this book that, that kind of annoyed me was the way Lewis defined very, very basic terms and explaining what intersectionality is um and and things like that i was just like okay i don't need to read this well i don't know if the two you of don't. you how the two of you felt about it you could get, you could you have a ph you know you don't have a phd in this but you have the equivalent of a phd <laughs> in intersectionality the only reason i know about it is because i worked on a feminist law journal and you know i read the original kimberly crenshaw stuff back in the 90s you know so that's how i know about it but not everybody does. And this is sort of a general audience book. Um, yeah, I was wondering about, is this deep. a general audience book or is, this, is it more like master's level feminism? I think it's general audience. It's sort okay. of an overview. I mean, I found it in the middle table at a, you know, a, a chain bookstore in, in England. So, I mean, I think, I she's, think, I think it's done pretty well. That but. It's in there. I really think, um, but Again, I mean, I definitely know less than you do, for example, Doreen, regarding intersectionality or whatever, some of the terms. Um, but I think the way the, the book is is set and what it wants to talk about these different themes and to somehow just talk about feminism and what all these women have done for different causes for me, I yeah, I didn't. For me, it's good that it's there because I really, for it's the same as Teresa said. I wanted my husband to read it. I wanted my son to read it. This book because I really think it's a it's a very good way of just diving into a lot of different issues in feminism and getting a perspective on it that I think is really quite um, complete it's not complete at all and it can never be but again you know Mm -hmm. it gives you a really good and therefore I think it has to be there I think it's it's comprehensive and it also kind of most of the chapters you know end with what's going on in the current moment which 
I think is important to understand too. I mean, of course, there's a million different subtleties and different stylistical differences, you know, that we can take. And yeah, it's her it's her version of how to present it, of course. Yeah. Um, and I think it's it'd be good to read others as well. I mean, I think this is it could be a starting point that just segues nicely into time, which is um, she. In this chapter, she starts out by talking about the work of this woman who was um, in the 1970s named Selma James. And um, yeah, so she starts out by, this is a good, uh, a good quote that she starts at. She says, my grandmother didn't have the vote. My mother didn't have the pill and I don't have the time. So um, it's talking about really... Um, the main thing in the book in this chapter is unpaid labor and who does it and where and for whom and how are they compensated for that or in most cases not compensated for that. Um, and also she, this is her quote, the same force which radicalizes so many women, the burden of unpaid caring labor also hampers them from doing anything about it. Um, and she does point out that now that we have, we can all just log on to the internet and join in the commentary, um, that has changed the, the situation. It has changed the, the conversation. It's made it easier for people to talk about it and maybe even organize around it. So one of the, um, the questions is what is considered work in, in our economy and how do you value it? And she points out, um, that work that you do to take care of other people or your home, um, including elder care and child care, um, you know, housework and stuff is not really valued. And if it were, um, that would be, um, the economy would be twice as big as it is. Um, I mean, there's a line about if a man marries his housekeeper, the, the, the gross national pot, product shrinks because now she's doing it for free. So um, one of the things that Selma James wrote about, and she wrote um, a book called A Woman's Place, and it was basically a, a collection of uh, small writings, I guess, that she basically wrote and in, in, on the side on slips of paper that she put together into a pamphlet, basically. Um, she was part of a movement in England called Wages for Housework. And I guess these women were, um, they were a group of difficult women and they um, they put off a lot of middle-class women by, I guess, by their, um, their basically Marxist tendencies of um, talking about um, about how unpaid work is, is the basis, is props up capitalism, which is true. And it props up the patriarchy, which is true. And um, it's the system, it's, it's the water we swim in, as somebody said. <clears throat> so it's, it's difficult to change and to address. But also, um, you know, as we got into the 20th century, uh, once women had the right to work, um, the price of everything started going up. So to, to have a, a house or to have a certain standard of living, it almost became necessary for um, there to be uh, both, uh, if there's a two-parent household for them both to be working or for, um, 
both partners to to bring in income in a in a couple or in a family. Um, and then um, she uh, introduces us to a woman named Arlene Hochschild, who's I think American actually, um, and she's the one who sort of started writing about the second shift and how women have to come home from how it. it it ended up that as soon as there were both people working, they still didn't change the, uh, the division of labor after work, um, you know, to come home and take care of the kids and uh, clean the house and cook the dinner and that sort of thing. One of the things she talked about, even with, with um, even in situations where the male partner helps <laughs> quote helps mm. around the house. Um, first of all, he shouldn't be saying, Oh, you should ask for help because he, it's his yeah. life too. It's his job too. Um, but also um, that just the mental load of figuring out what's got to happen when and making sure everybody gets to school on time and making sure there's food in the refrigerator, that sort of thing. That's what making sure itself. all the vaccinations are up to date. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, I, why should I be the one to tell you this? You also live here. They're also your kids. Yeah, I guess there was, there's a great uh, bit about, um, I guess it was in France in 2017. Uh, there was a com. there was like a comic. Of, um, from Emma. It's comic artist. Yeah. Yeah. Book Emma. She oh, came yeah, up yeah, with yeah. a, called The Mental Load. So she yeah. showed uh, a frazzled mother juggling cookie and childcare until the pot boiled over. In comes a women part, woman's partner who's declared. But you should have asked. I would have helped. I said the strip went viral, viral because of that, because it wasn't like, what do you mean? I would have helped. You should have been here too. Um, another thing she mentions, though, which is really interesting, and this is something I, I personally experienced back in the day when I had a full-time job that was fairly demanding, um, was that as soon as women started being able to take in, take on jobs in industry and in law and in medicine, suddenly those jobs became a lot more demanding. And just to put in a, like a 40 hour week or even, you know, a, a serious effort in a normal, in what used to be normal, like 40 plus hours a week, suddenly to get ahead in those jobs, you need to work 80. And it's something that you can't do that. And also, take care of your family life. You know, even if your family is just a couple, you really, it requires everything and then more. Um, and as the, I guess there was a big art, a big series in the New York times uh, in 20, in 2019. And the headline was women did everything right. And then work got greedy, which actually I read, it was really interesting. Um, so uh, there's a lot of stuff in this book about, um, was it, it, well, in this chapter, um, it's just inherent as there's a capital, there's a critique of capitalism and there was a lot of strains of feminism back in the seventies that were overtly Marxism and it just kind of got folded in. So now when we talk about these things, um, you know, we're inherently criticizing the system. And one of the things she ends up talking about universal basic income, because she's saying, well, what, what could we do about unpaid labor short of just making sure everybody has income? Um, so I think we're going to be hearing a lot about universal um, basic income over the next decades. Oh yeah. In 20, um, 
20, I think 16, Switzerland had a vote about universal basic income and 25% mm-hmm. voted in favor, which is actually huge considering that it was a completely new idea, um, mm-hmm. not one that has a ton of public favor. Um, but yeah, personally, I think that universal basic income can help so many marginalized people. Um, if a woman is being sexually harassed at work, just as an example, she can quit her job without worrying about how she's going to survive or mm-hmm. she can leave an abusive partner without worrying about how she's going to raise her children or, you know, even survive on her own if there are no children. Like, I, I personally really, really believe in the idea of a UBI. Well, and just to go back to just the, the whole discussion of capitalism, um, it's really, once we start moving more to automation and there's going to be fewer kind of jobs for people to physically do, um, I think it's going to create a lot more stress on the system. I mean, there's already the huge stress from having such a huge uh, divide between the haves and the haves not, have-nots and, you know, how big the, the income gap and the wage gap and the wealth gap is growing by leaps and bounds. And that's going to, that's unsustainable. I mean, you can't have that many people with that little money and have it work. Which got so, worse during the pandemic, actually. It gets worse every minute. And, but yeah, but the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about UBI in the next the next several years because things are, the, the system can't stand up well, with all this. I'm not advocating for revolution, but I'm thinking that I am. have to change. There you go. There's our resident radical. Yes. <laughs> you know, I think, we, but one of the things that too, and maybe this is a way of, of wrapping this up, is that we have to keep having conversations. We have to listen to a lot of, we have to have your resident radical. Um, you have to have the voices from outsiders and you have to accept that sometimes part of what they're saying is unpalatable, but we have to, keep talking and try to sift out what's what's valuable and what we can agree on and what we can continue to make progress on because we still have progress to make. That's for sure. I also want to say that on the issue of unpaid labor, Isabel and I recorded an episode almost a year ago about this, which I swear I will release. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to it. It's it's going to be, as you say, Teresa, it's going to be um, a topic in uh, politics for us. I mean, in, in the next, uh, it's because, yeah, uh, as you say, also because of automation and uh, artificial intelligence, there are whole bands of, 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 of professions that are going to go away and that, uh, you know, people will not find... Uh, and then two, I mean, to add to that, we have climate change and people that will be migrating because of that. So we will, I mean, we'll definitely have a, a, a that's one of the main topics, I think, questions that society will have to resolve over the next three years. Yeah, well, and like you said, but mass, mass migration, um, climate change, mm-hmm. um, loss of sort of factory jobs. I mean, this is what we're seeing, um, the result of that, what we're seeing already in the US and in Europe is this populism, waves of populism, um, which aren't really good for human rights or civil rights. They end up like 
having a certain group of people saying we need to go back to how we were before. Um, and it doesn't always, it's in my mind, it's not constructive because it's going back to the U S and it's attacking the people who have less rather than the people who are taking everything. Mm -hmm. Well, you got that right. I mean, that, that's obvious, but that's, (laughs) but if you tell somebody that somebody else is stealing from them and it's like the person below them on the ladder, um, the economic ladder, that seems to be very resonant. And that's, you know, how people are winning elections these days, or in some cases, losing them. So without naming names. So yeah, I think we have, a, I think this, is, this, anyway, there's some, like I said, every chapter gives you a framework to think about, um, you know, what, what's going on and, um, and what's, maybe you know what's going to happen over the few years even that over the decade that follows like even the abortion thing it's pretty current you know she she was on the street in uh, ireland when the referendum uh, came out and you know we're, we're viewing now is argentina mm. and poland yeah oh my god poland you know um so you know we're in the thick of things nothing's nothing is settled and we can't um we can't just assume that our rights that we have right now are going to be intact if we don't stay vigilant and keep fighting for them. So we have work to do. Um, and then also maybe I just put in a plug that um, there's going to be a international survey of women that asks what their priorities are um, as far as what we should focus on. Um, it would vary. It will be, launched in pretty much every country, I think. And it'll certainly be launched in Switzerland. So uh, if anybody's listening, uh, make sure you fill out the survey. The campaign is called the Global Count. So just if you hear about it, that you can, yeah, that you take part in the survey. And spread the word. Yes. Spread the word. It's good talking to you guys. Yeah, Merry Christmas both. Merry Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) and talk to you after the new year bye bye